All right, good morning, ARC. How y'all doing this morning? All right, all right, all right, all right. Praise God that we serve a good, good father. That indeed we can call upon him as father. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 1. If you need a Bible, raise your hands. Uh, one of the ushers will be happy to, to get you one. So right up front here. Sister Tasha, if you need a Bible, raise your hands and we'll bring you one. If you don't own a Bible, then that just became our gift to you. We would love for you to take that Bible, write your name in it, make it your own, study it day to day, and um, bring it with you when we gather to hear God's Word and um, devote yourself to it. It, it, will, it will reveal to you um, this great God that we've been singing about. And so we're happy for you to have that. Before we um, get to the sermon this morning, a uh, couple things to to do by way of, uh, again, welcoming visitors this morning. So glad that you're here. We're glad that you would worship with this morning. We're honored that you would be with us this morning. Are any of our visitors here from the, the NAMAC conference, from the National African American Missions Conference? Okay. Maybe an overflow. All right. Well, that conference was last week, and uh, we pray for that conference, and we're thankful for the work it's doing to sort of stir people to the mission field, particularly from predominantly black and brown neighborhoods, which are underrepresented on the mission field. So we're grateful um, for that work. Uh, we have scripture memory this morning, but before we do that, let me just sort of say a, a, few, a few words about events this past week, um, just to sort of focus us as a congregation and to sort of help together to think about, uh, think about these things. I went on vacation last week and the lawmakers went crazy. Uh, I can't take vacation no more. Um, several, several rulings that have come from the Supreme Court and um, bills that were taken action on by our legislators. Uh, you know that there's a ruling in the Supreme Court that in some ways weakened Miranda protections, at least the ability um, to sue if your Miranda rights have been violated. Some of you look at me like, what are Miranda rights? Well, if you've ever watched a crime show and they arrest somebody and say, you have the right to remain silent, et cetera, et cetera, those are the Miranda rights. Uh, and violating those rights, um, there used to be stronger protections for citizens against the violation of those rights. Uh, so the weakening of those protections in terms of being able to sue if they've been violated um, isn't a particularly good outcome particularly for communities that are over-policed uh, in, in a state with sort of over-incarceration. So that's something for us to be praying about and thinking about. Not only did they rule on that, but they also uh, made a ruling on, the Supreme Court made a ruling on um, concealed carry. Uh, I don't know what you think about firearms. It's not what this sermon is about or this talk is about. Um, so not sort of diving into that, except to say, last night we had a shootout behind our home, must have been 25, 30 rounds fired. Uh, it's the third or fourth time in as many weeks. Uh, that's just our neighborhood, right? Some of you are in another neighborhood, so you're hearing gunfire regularly. Um, we need to pray that we would do something about guns and the, the ravaging effect that it's having on our communities. Um, and so, uh, again, this is not me soapboxing about gun rights, um, but we just calling God's people to pray. Um, that um, we would see justice where that's concerned as well. Uh, there is a bill passed, I think passed, or on the floor uh, of Congress that are attempting some reforms around gun control. That's a good thing. Let's pray that we, we continue to make steps in those directions that are righteous steps. And of course, the, 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 the action of the Supreme Court that got the most attention was the striking down of Roe v. Wade, which I take to be a necessary and good first step. Uh, toward the end of abortion. Now, why I qualified as necessary and good? Well, essentially what the court did was turn it back over to the states. 
and made it a state's rights issue. They did not rule that children are human persons, guaranteed life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. What it does is shift the theater of action from the court back to the states and back to local communities. And, and some could say, well, that's where it should be. I would just remind us that slavery was once a state's rights issue. And states' rights is a, a, a really weak argumentation for establishing justice across the whole society, right? So there's still work to do in convincing folks that the unborn are actually children, are actually human. There's still work to do on not just the policy level, but the programmatic level and the personal level. And one of the things I think we need to be careful about as Christians is even as we, if we celebrate something happening on the policy level, we, we can't then let ourselves off the hook for the programmatic and the personal level, right? So you know that as a congregation, we've been trying to adopt and think about the sort of pro-abundant life framework that our brother Rollin Warren and the folks at CareNet have. Part of what we are calling ourselves to do as a church is if we have opportunity to serve someone who's been thinking about life decisions in that way, we want to help them not just to decide to have the child, but we want to help them for the 18 to 21 years they're going to be raising the child. To come alongside them to pro provide the kind of supports and community that are necessary for raising children. Um, and so there's a lot of work to do on the programmatic and the personal level. And, and let us be careful not to have the personal conversations sort of overly defined and the temperature set by the public policy argument. You're sitting down with someone who's thinking about those kinds of decisions. It's not the time to debate Roe. It's the time to love your neighbor, right? It's the time to care for your neighbor. And so we live in complex times. And uh, God's people, we need to be on our knees and uh, seeking his face in that way. So if you would, just join me and let's, let's pray together. Father, again, we live in a world that you have made, but that we have distorted by our sin. And Lord, the distortions are complex. It's like a plate of spaghetti noodles. And we don't know how to pull the noodle out straight because it's all tangled. But you do. You know what you're doing in the world, and we trust you. And we pray that you give us grace to walk with you and to serve you and to be faithful to you and your word, come what may. Lord, in these times, Lord, where the country is so torn apart, whether it's debates about gun and gun control, whether it's debates about uh, abortion and life. Lord, we have spent the last almost 10 years seeing these public discussions really divide your people. And we pray that you would protect us from that, that you would strengthen our unity, that you would strengthen our commitment to each other in covenant love, and that you'd help us to have the conversations that we need to have to agree and disagree charitably as brothers and sisters in Christ where that needs to happen. But most of all, you'd help us to rejoice in Jesus, to find our identity in him, to find our unity in him, and that you would help us to live out the word more fully than we did yesterday, to commit ourselves more fully to justice than we were perhaps last week, and imperfectly but in faith move forward to do the whole counsel of God. Help us, O oh Lord, we pray, cause righteousness to shine like the noonday sun. Give our lawmakers wisdom. Give them courage. Help them not to fear man, not to fear voters, not to do things for votes, but to do things that are right because they're right. Lord, we need more lawmakers who would be happy to serve only one term 
if they would lose an election because they were doing what was right. Lord, we pray, put an end to the sort of calculating spirit of this age that's always looking to a poll and always looking to public opinion to decide which way the wind is blowing and is tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine and sentiment and popularity. Raise up men and women, O oh Lord, leaders who would plant their feet firmly and lead in righteousness, we pray. And if we cannot have that with our elected officials, oh God, please make sure that we have that with your church. Make your church righteous, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So, beloved, 1 Timothy chapter 1. As you know, we've, been, uh, we've committed to memorizing this book together as a church, uh, taking sort of each paragraph a week. And uh, this week we are reciting verses 1 through 7. Uh, so is there anybody who wants to recite for us 1 Timothy 1, 1 to 7, or maybe even 3 to 7, or 1 and 2? Two weeks ago we did 1 and 2. Last week we did 3 to 7. Any takers? All right. Come on, Chris. Come on. Give it up. Any different way. Amen. 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 Look at that beautiful, brilliant, and godly, huh? That's my wife. That's my rib. Anybody, anybody else? Anybody else want to recite? Hello, take it. Okay, then look with me in First Timothy chapter one. I'll read verses one to eleven. We'll settle in verses eight and eleven. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God our Savior, and of Christ Jesus our hope. To Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Our text for this morning, verse 8. Now we know that the law is good 
if one uses it lawfully. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. Father, we pray that you would bless the preaching and the hearing of your word. Lord, let us hear it mixed with faith, we pray, and let us be changed, Lord, by what we hear and see in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So let's open with a question. How should Christians relate to the law of God? How should Christians relate to the law? There is perhaps a few questions that are more important because this question has a significant impact on how we think about and how we live the Christian life. And in fact, whether or not it's a satisfying or a burdensome life. God reveals himself as creator. That means that he's our maker, which means he owns us. Not only is he our creator, but he is also the lawgiver. He's pronounced rules from the throne of heaven, rules for us. His eternal law is holy and unbreakable. That all seems right, doesn't it? Common sense. If God has laws and he is our creator, then we creatures owe him obedience to those laws. How we relate to the law of God determines how we relate to God, the lawgiver. Seems pretty straightforward, doesn't it? But it's not really. Settling this issue is so critically important because there are a number of mistakes we make when it comes to relating to God's law. Let me give you four. Some people say that Christians ought to obey the entire law in order to have a relationship with God. That's legalism. That's putting law before the relationship. Some other Christians say, no, 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 you start with Jesus and faith, and then you add the law. You got to keep the law in order to please God. Okay, well, Jesus plus anything equals nothing. That's the mistake the Judaizers made in the Bible. They were gospel plus law people. Well, there's a third group. Some people say, yes, we must keep the law. In fact, we must arrive at a kind of sinless perfection. These are the perfectionists. I've met some, but they didn't seem to me all that perfect. Finally, there are some who say the law doesn't matter at all. We are not under the law, but under what? Grace. Now, some of these folks are known as antinomians. Anti meaning against, nomos, nomian law. They are against the law. These are folks who actually set aside the law in a very unhealthy way. Those positions aren't correct either. Now, it's interesting. When you read the pastoral epistles, in, in most all the epistles, 1 Timothy and Titus, Paul pretty quickly comes to this question of the law and how we address the Christian's relationship to the law. And this morning is no exception. So as we look at verses 8 to 11, I want us to ask and answer three questions from this text. Number one, is the law good? Is the law good? 
That's from verse 8. Number two, can the law be misused? Can the law be misused? Verse 8 and beginning in verse 9. And number three, how should we use the law? How should we use the law? Verses 9 to 11. Is the law good? Well, remember in verses 6 and 7, Paul mentions certain persons. He says that they want to be teachers of the law, but they neither understand what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. We might say they were talking loud and saying nothing. They were fully confident in their ignorance. And what they wanted to teach was the law. Now, that, that word, the law, can refer to a couple of different things. It, can, it refers sometimes to the first five books of the Bible, the books of Moses. Sometimes the word law is used to refer pretty much to the entire Old Testament, and even sometimes the writings of the ancient rabbis commentating on the Old Testament. Uh, this, is, this is Torah. This is uh, a word, Torah is a word that means instruction or guidance. The law was not this sort of you know, there, there are 10 little rules we got to keep, or maybe 633 rules we got to keep. In the Jewish mind, the law was sort of a, a way that defined and governed the entire life. It was how you live to please God. And so these folks were wanting to teach the law, either the Ten Commandments or the Old of the Old Testament or Torah, as a way of defining the Christian life, that if you're going to please God, we must live like Jewish persons live. 1 Timothy 1, 6, 7, again, refers to those persons. Verse 8, though, answers our question, because Paul basically rebukes them in verses 6 and 7, but then says in verse 8, now we know that the law is good. And Paul's real clever here, right? He refers to certain persons in verse 6, and now he's kind of protecting the church by saying, okay, we know. Now, there, there's some of us now who get it, who understand. We're not like those certain persons who have swerved from the truth and have wandered away into vain discussion. No, we know. We Christians know. We Christian church know that the law is good. So the problem fundamentally in verses 6 and 7 wasn't simply that they wanted to say something about the law. It was that they didn't know what they were talking about when they talked about the law. The law itself is good, and remembering that keeps us from antinomianism, keeps us from rejecting the law in the wrong ways. So Paul here is defending the church. And that might seem like an obvious thing to say, the law is good. But in the first century, you'll realize that this had to be said often, that Paul had to explain that often because the gospel had burst into the world and brought this different way of living that raised all these kinds of questions about, well, what were we doing before? Is that bad? Do we continue that? And this is why we have the whole council in Acts chapter 15. Gentiles are coming to faith. Do we require them to sort of obey the law and keep the law, or do they, do they come to faith and when they're justified by faith, and do they enter a different way of life? This was the fundamental question in some sense in the first century church. And so it required saying simple but true and important things like, no, no, we know the law of God, like everything God does, is good. Romans 7, 12, you see it in another place, Paul says there, so the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous, and good. Again, this is something that keeps us from rejecting the law in the wrong way. 
I just want to make one application from this first question, this first point. Is the law good? The answer is yes. I just want to make one application here. And that means then, I think, beloved, we want to cultivate in our hearts a genuine love for the law of God. We want to cultivate in our hearts not the sense that the law or the commandments are burdensome to us, but they are good, they're righteous, they're holy. Psalm 119 would be a great psalm to sort of just sit in and meditate on. The entire psalm is on the word of God, is on the law of God. But let me, let me sort of cherry pick about four verses in Psalm 119 that, that sort of illustrate what I'm talking about in terms of cultivating this love. Psalm 119, verse 97. The psalmist, is, psalmist says there, oh, how I love your law, exclamation mark. It is my meditation all the day. Not Twitter or Instagram. But the law, oh, how I love your law. Or Psalm 119, verse 113. He says there, I hate the double-minded, but I love your law. I hate the double-minded, but I love your law. Psalm 119, 162 to 163. The psalm writer says this, I rejoice at your word like one who finds great spoil. I hate and abhor falsehood, but I love your law. He says, listen, I rejoice at your word like I just found a treasure. Like I just happened upon a camp, an army uh, that was destroyed, and all of this great treasure was out there. This spoil was out there. That's what your word is like to me. It's like this great abundance, this great inheritance, and I rejoice. I hate falsehood, but I love your law. Psalm 119, verse 165. Great peace have those who love your law. Nothing can make them stumble. Nothing can make them stumble. You want peace? You want sure-footedness in life? Commit yourself to the Word of God. Commit yourself to the law. Love it, for in it is God's voice. Through it is revealed to us our great God. Is the law good? We know that it is. But that raises a second question then. If it's good, can it, can it be misused? Can the law be misused? Well, that's what Paul begins to give his attention to there in verse 8. Notice the qualification in verse 8. We know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. See, wrong use can make a good law bad. Specifically, the Bible teaches in verse 9 that we should, notice, understand this, that the law is not laid down for the just. The law is not laid down for the just. So the specific misuse Paul has in mind here is the taking of the law, the Old Testament law, and using it as a foundation laid down for life for the just. Who's the just? It's the Christian. It's the one who has put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and thereby has been declared righteous by God who has received the gift of the Holy Spirit and has been sealed for eternal life and now walks and lives by the Spirit. For those ones, the law is not a basis for life. To make it so is to misuse the law. So I take this to mean that no part of our salvation, from justification to sanctification to glorification, is accomplished by the law. Not one part of it. So let me chase that in, 
in various texts. So you can write these down, or if you, if you used to do Bible sword drills when you were a kid and you're quick with the Bible, you can turn the pages, whatever you like. Romans chapter 8, verse 3. Paul says there, for God, God now, has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. So your salvation and my salvation is an accomplishment of God, not the law. God has done what the law could not do because of our sin nature. Okay? No part of our salvation is accomplished by the law. The law had a, a sort of time-limited function for the world. Galatians 3, 23 to 26, the Apostle Paul writes there, now before faith came, we were, held under, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was your guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian, for in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. Paul is using a, a word picture there. He's thinking about uh, in the ancient world, these guardians or these folks who had sort of custody of a child sort of working with the family. And, and their, their job was, you might think of them as, as tutors or, or whatever. Their job was to basically help raise the child, teach the child. And in this image of, of, of sort of that guardian walking with the child in his hand until the child's an adult and letting them go. Well, the law is like that. It's a schoolmaster. It's a, it's a tutor. It's a guardian that was keeping guard of us until Jesus came. And when Jesus came and the gospel and the work of the gospel were accomplished, we, we as it were, by faith were saved and no longer needed that guardian. We had come into the fullness of Christ through faith. So Paul could say in Romans 10, verse 4, Christ is the end of the law so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. Christ is the end of the law, so that there may be righteousness, not by the law, but for everyone who believes, who has faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So just to push this further, we cannot use the law for justification. We do not have righteousness with God by becoming legalists, right? Romans 3.20, for by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Galatians 3.10 and 11, for all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all, all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one, Jew or Gentile, is justified by God or before God by the law for the righteous shall live by faith. Hebrews 7, 18 and 19. The former regulation, the law, is set aside because it was weak and useless, for the law made nothing perfect. Only Christ does. So if you're a Christian, or wanting to be a Christian, or wanting to understand what it is to be a Christian, do not make the mistake of thinking you become a Christian and you become right with God, justified in God's sight, by obeying the law. The law cannot produce righteousness that God accepts as a basis for forgiveness and salvation. You with me? Okay, now here's another thing. 
We cannot use the law for sanctification. Fancy words this morning. Justification is just a word that means that you have been declared righteous by God the moment you believed in Christ. Sanctification then refers to your life after that point, all the way to the time that Jesus comes. It is a word that basically means holiness, being set apart for God and and growing in holiness. And the question is, as some Christians ask, okay, I was saved by faith in Christ. Do I now grow in holiness by obeying the law? The answer is no. The answer is no. Galatians 5, 16 to 18. We do not become holy by becoming legalists. Notice what Paul says in Galatians 5, 16 to 18. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. Then verse 18, notice now, but if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under what? The law. You see how he puts the law on the side of the flesh? And he says, now, if we want to live in a way that's pleasing to God, we live not by the flesh and not by the law. We live by what? The Spirit. Our sanctification is a matter of Spirit-filled living, not legalism. Spirit-filled living, not legalism. Notice again, Romans 7, verse 6. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. So, beloved, your life as a Christian is meant to be lived in the new way of the Spirit, not in the old way of the written code, not in the old way of the law and legalism. And this is what Paul tells us in Colossians 2, verse 20 to around 22 or so, basically that all the rules, do not taste, do not handle, do not touch, they are powerless to subdue the flesh. In other words, they don't work anyway. Our sanctification is not us saying, yes, we believe in Jesus, now let's sprinkle in a little law. Our sanctification is, yes, we believe in Jesus, now let us go on in the Spirit, filled with the Spirit of God. This means, number three, we misuse the law if we use it for defining Christian freedom. If we use it for defining Christian freedom, we will not be free by keeping the law. Did you notice in a number of those texts I read a moment ago, Paul talks about the law taking us captive. It didn't set us free. It took us captive. And so he says something like this in Galatians 5, verse 1, for freedom Christ has set us free, stand firm then, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery to the law. You remember Galatians is written principally um, to address those Judaizers who come to Galatia who are trying to add the law again. He's like, no, 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 don't let yourself be entangled again to that slavery. For freedom, Christ has set us free. It's an interesting sort of phrasing. He's saying the goal of your free, of the goal of Jesus in setting us free is that you might actually enjoy that freedom. And the way to enjoy that freedom is not to let yourself be tied again to the law as if it's your master. James 2, verse 12. James says there, in conclusion to his argument in that paragraph, so speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. 
It's a whole different law. This is the law of freedom, not the written code. And Bubba, one last thing we should say about misusing the law. We, we shouldn't use the law for justification. We shouldn't use it for sanctification. We shouldn't use it for defining Christian freedom. And number, number four, we, we shouldn't be using it picking and choosing which parts we want to obey. James 2, 10 and 11. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law, the whole law. The law is like a, a, a stained glass window. You got all these sort of beautiful colors in different shaped pieces of glass. The stained glass window is only beautiful if all of the sort of colors and pieces are hanging together to complete the whole picture. Throw a rock through it and break out parts, it's no longer whole, is it? That's the case with the law. You may be cruising along saying, listen, I, I obey nine out of 10. That's a, that's a 90, that's an A in school. God like, but hey, you broke that one. You're guilty of the whole now, right? I grade on a curve, God said. I curve it down. All the way down, all the way down. So the law is holy and the law is good. And the law exposes sin. But the one who comes to Jesus, the just ones, we're no longer living under the law. We're living according to the freedom that Jesus gives. Our lives are not defined by legalistic reasoning and practice. That's a misuse of the law in the Christian faith. Our lives are defined by faith and by the Holy Spirit and by righteousness from God. So how do we apply this? Let me just ask you some questions you might think about in your own quiet moments this afternoon, or you might talk about over lunch with some friends from church. Just a few questions to think about. Here's one. Is there any place in your Christian life or my Christian life where we're using the law as our foundation? We're using it as our foundation for justification or sanctification or freedom. And as a follow-up to that, what, what's been the effect on you? What's been the effect on you? Can you detect how that impacts your heart, whether it impacts your heart in a quiet self-righteousness? Lord, look at me, I'm not like these pagans. Or does it affect your heart in burdensome guilt? Lord, I just keep messing up. Here's another question. Are you living by faith? The just shall live by faith, not just for justification, but for all of life. Is that next purchase decision prompted by faith? Now, let me be clear there. I don't mean presumption, right? You know you ain't got money for it. You can't afford it. But, Lord, I'm just going to believe you to give. No, 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 no. That's not what I'm talking about. That's what I'm talking about. Isn't it amazing how for some people faith only reasons in one direction? It only says, yes, faith is this sort of permissive power. That faith, Lord, I'm going to trust you to do without this thing sort of never seems to come up. Are we walking by faith? Here's a third question. Are we led by the Spirit, and are we fulfilling the desires of the Spirit? You know, can we see the fruit of the Spirit in our life and in the lives of others? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, all those things against which the Bible says there is no law. 
right? No one filled with the Spirit should ever feel condemned by the law because there's no law against Spirit-filled living. So do we see that? Do we detect the motions of the Spirit in our lives controlling us and producing in us those qualities? That's how we want to keep in step with the Spirit. Are we tempted to be legalists, not in judging ourselves, but in judging others, other Christians? When we think about someone else's walk, do we pull out the law and condemn them with the law? Or do we judge them based on the law of liberty, as Galatians 2.12 put it? And let's think about this not just as individuals, but let's, let's kind of roll this up into our church culture. As a congregation, as a church culture, do we breathe law or do we breathe gospel? We breathe legalism and condemnation or grace and faith and spirit. The Christian life is meant to be an entirely different way of life than Torah, built on an entirely different foundation than law. It's built on the cross and the empty tomb. It's built on the accomplishment of Jesus, which has freed us from the law and freed us now to serve God with a clean conscience, with liberty and freedom. Is this the culture of our church? Is this how we regard each other? Is this how we encourage one another? Is this how we build one another up by the reminder of the freedom that we have found in Jesus? This new life that we have is not new in the sense that we just got it. It's new in the sense that it's altogether different from the old. So we want to, as a church culture, embrace and enjoy this newness that Jesus gives. Finally, how do you know that you're doing that? You're maybe embracing and living in this newness. Well, I would suggest to you that you probably are experiencing a little bit of awkwardness. It's an awkwardness that comes from realizing that you're not sinning, but you also don't have a lot of rules for this new life, right? And the reason that feels awkward is because our native language as fallen human beings is law. We understand law. We default to law. But now Jesus has called us into a life that's not built on the law. And it's kind of like, okay, how do you live that? How do you live in the Spirit? How do you keep in step with the Spirit? Well, you're probably experiencing freedom, which may make you a little nervous. But with that freedom, you're doing righteous things, which encourages you and keeps your conscience clean. That's where we want to be. That's where we want to be following the Lord in this way. Because to apply the law to the Christian, to the just, is a misuse of the law. Okay? Third question. How then do we use the law? How then do we use the law? What's the proper use of the law? Well, that's spelled out for us in verses 9 to 11. Look there with me in 1 Timothy 1. Paul says there, the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God which which I have been entrusted. That's a mouthful, ain't it? 
Here's what Paul is saying. Paul says the law does have a target audience. In one word, it's the unbeliever. The target audience for the law are those who do not yet know God. And here's why. The main function of the law, one of the primary functions of the law, is to expose sin and to bring guilt. To expose sin and to bring guilt. The law convicts. So cite again Romans 3.20. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Then Paul gives the reason. Since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Through the law comes the knowledge of sin. That's one of its primary purposes. Romans 7, verse 7. What shall we say then? That the law is sin? By no means. And he says this, yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had said, you shall not covet. Now, that, that probably is true. Everybody in this, in this room, we put, all could have probably wrote that sentence, right? I, I didn't even know what covenant was. I just wanted what he had. We're like, that's what covenant is, right? And, and God had to put that in the law so we would know. Otherwise, we'd just be walking around, ooh, girl, that's nice. I'm going to give me one of those. Why, why you got a house like that? I ain't got no house. You know, that's what we do. We just walk around coveting, particularly in a little materialistic society like the one we're in. And we would not have known except God said, thou shalt not covet. And we were awakened to the fact that we were doing something wrong. That's the purpose of the law, to expose us in precisely that way, to make us aware of our sin before a holy God. And in that way, God's commands actually increase sin by exposing it when we wouldn't have been aware of it. Now notice, Paul gives us this long list of situations. The, the first three pairs seem to be pointing to moral character. The, the next list of uh, five or six or so seem to be pointing to social conduct. So notice what he's doing. He says it applies to the lawless and disobedient, the ungodly and sinners, the unholy and profane. Then he moves to actual instances of sin. So those who strike their fathers and mothers. I don't know who that is. Everybody need to know that sin. Murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers. What's, what's remarkable about this list, there are lots of things remarkable about this list, but what's remarkable about this list is, if you notice, he's kind of paralleling the Ten Commandments. So those first three pairs really have to do with the first table of the law, our, what we owe to God in the way of worship. And in that next list of things, it's sort of tracking the, the rest of the law and what the law forbids. So the ungodly and the sinful are those who break the first commandment. You should have no other God besides me. The unholy and the irreligious are those who don't keep the Sabbath holy. Those who kill or strike their parents are those who fail to what? Honor their father or mother. The murderers break the commandment. You shall not kill. The sexually immoral and homosexuality, thou shalt not commit adultery. Slave traders or man-stealers here or enslavers, those who break the commandment, you shall not steal. For they were stealing people rather than possessions. Liars and perjurers break the commandment, you shall not bear false witness. So Paul here is really just, in one sense, breaking down the law. And it can seem counterintuitive, but God's law is addressed to people who don't pay attention to it. It's addressed to people who need to hear it, because they're blind to their sin. 
unaware of their sin, unbothered by their sin, not experiencing guilt because of their sin. The law is a letter written to them to say, wake up and come to me. And if that list wasn't enough, notice, Paul goes on to say, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. He's like, I'm not being exhaustive here. You probably thinking of some stuff I ain't named yet. Yeah, that too. Right? Whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. Now, I love that phrase, whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. Notice now, in this text, doctrine is not belief. It is also behavior. The gospel produces a sound or healthy way of living. So, so one way we judge whether someone has sound doctrine or understands the gospel is by judging whether their lives agree with the gospel and the teaching that comes from it. You don't prove you have sound doctrine just by preaching sound doctrine. You prove you have sound doctrine by living sound doctrine. Let me give you three quick illustrations. A Christian who claims to be sound this is in the news, and it's in our list this morning. God times things perfectly. A Christian who claims to be sound but supports abortion, which is murder, does not have sound doctrine. They contradict it and the gospel. As we said before, there are many ways, many ways we should support women and protect children. And, oh, by the way, hold fathers accountable. There are many ways that we should do these things, but killing the child is not one of them. And then the baby's life ain't it, because it's murder and contrary to sound doctrine. Or another example, a, a Christian who claims sound doctrine, but who, who practices either heterosexual sin or homosexual sin, does not have sound doctrine. They contradict it. And, and if you're a practicer of one and you condemn the other, then you're also a hypocrite. You're also a hypocrite. We can't be collections of Christians who are angry about homosexuality or unkind toward persons who are dealing with that and at the same time be wink, wink, nod, nod, excusing heterosexual sin. It's about heterosexual sin that Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 4 that God is the avenger of these things. And he tells us that these things shouldn't even be named among us. Right? So we don't have sound doctrine if we're picking and choosing which, which sexual sin we're going to beat people up about. Well, let me get a third example. A Christian who traded and owned slaves, see there, enslavers, or if you have the NLV, it says man-stealers, does not have sound doctrine or understand the gospel. That ought to be obvious. Jonathan Edwards did not have sound doctrine. George Whitfield did not have sound doctrine. The Southern Baptist Convention, which was founded to uh, allow um, its members and its missionaries to own slaves, is not practicing sound doctrine. American Reformed Evangelical uh, Fundamentalist Christianity, which likes to talk so much about how sound this doctrine is, read the receipts. Read the receipts does not have sound doctrine according to this text because sound doctrine isn't just about what you do with your lips. It's about what you do with your life. Notice here, 
that this sound doctrine actually refers to a lifestyle, verse 11, that is in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God. This means that the soil and the root of Christian living is the good news, the gospel, not the law. The life of sound doctrine, if it is truly sound, must come from the soil of the gospel. Specifically, Paul calls it the gospel of the glory of the blessed God. The gospel means good news. We know that, right? This good news is the, the core and most important message of the Bible, of Christianity. It's the news that God gave his only son to die on the cross for our sins. Whether we were men stealers or murderers or sexually immoral or liars and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, God did something about it in giving his son to die for us. If we had or encouraged an abortion, Christ died for that. That we would not carry that sin any longer. If we lied to mom and dad and dishonored them from the time we were little kids to the time we got older, Christ died for that. It was nailed to the cross. That's the good news. He died and he rose again three days later so that anyone who would repent of their sin and put their faith in him would have their record of sin exposed by the law, nailed to Jesus' cross, and bear it no more. And so that they can, by faith, then go on in freedom with God, serving him with a clean conscience, worried about judgment and guilt no more. This is the gospel, notice, of the glory. God has tied his greatness, his beauty, his splendor, his fame, his loveliness to this truth that his son, his son died for us and was raised again. This is the gospel of the glory of the blessed God. The word blessed means happy. Don't you know God was happy to save you? He was happy to save you. He's not grudging. He's not resistant. He wasn't, oh, there they go again. I got to rescue them. He wasn't like that at all. He's like, no, no, no. I'm going to be happy to reveal my glory in this gospel of my son who will die for their sins and redeem them from the law, redeem them from the penalty of the law, redeem them from sin and death so that they will be mine. I'm happy to do that. How often do we feel like God just might not forgive us or that this might just be one time too many that we've asked for forgiveness? God is sitting in glory, happy, blessed, saying, no, 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 come to me. Drink from this fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. When sinners plunge beneath that flood, lose all their guilty stains. Happy to do. And if you're here this morning, you're not yet a Christian. And maybe some of these things have felt like knife pricks. Maybe your heart or your mind has been stabbed a little bit. And you've been made aware of your sin. Listen, do the right thing with your sin, which is not try to act better, but instead to call upon the name of Jesus. 
and ask him to save you. Confess your sin, repent of it, and put your faith in Jesus as the son of God who died for your sins personally and was raised from the grave that you might have eternal life. And the Bible says you will, in that moment, receive eternal life and begin to live this new life which you will live forever with God. It's not the law doing right that brings you to God. It's Jesus and the cross and the empty tomb that brings you to him. Trust and follow Jesus and receive life. Romans 1.17 says, For in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last. Just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Live by faith, and God will call you righteous. Live by faith, and you will be accepted by him. Live by faith, and you'll be free from condemnation, guilt, and shame. Because Christ has taken it away. He's taking it away. So having eternal life through faith in Christ is not about legalism. It's not about Judaizing. It's not about perfectionism. It's not about antinomianism. It's about trust. Trusting Jesus to do what he said he would do. He's never lied, and he won't begin with you. Put your faith in him and be saved. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for the treasures of your word and the richness of this great salvation. We thank you for Jesus who achieved it for us and the spirit who applies it to us. We thank you that you have given yourself to us in the full, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we pray that you'd help us to enjoy you more fully each day, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Well, I pray you free the legalists, that they would turn from the law to trust in Christ. I pray that you would protect the, the one who is the Judaizer from Judaizing ways of adding the law to the gospel. I pray that you keep us from antinomianism, acting as if the law doesn't matter anymore, that it's not holy. It is good. Help us to love your law and see in it your perfect person. And grant, O oh Lord, that we would happily happily, happily break up with our love affair of perfection. We're never going to achieve it, and we don't have to, for Christ has become our perfection. He has sacrificed himself once and for all and sat down at your right hand, and you have accepted him, and accepting him have accepted us. So let us rest in Christ and hope in him. Let us, O oh Lord, use your law lawfully. Let those of us who know it's good, though, go on in the freedom of your spirit. We pray this, O Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.